My name is Alex Kashuta, and this is the Subversive Podcast. It's an excuse for me to talk to some of the most interesting people on the heterodox to heretic spectrum. Everyone from iconoclast philosophers to rogue scientists to real post-BuzzFeed journalists and our true intellectual elite, Twitter anonymous accounts. In short, they're quite subversive. Enjoy. Today, I'm joined by Sam Ashworth-Hayes. Um, he is a journalist. Um, he's a journalist who's appeared in, in many of our favorite publications, in The Spectator, The Critic, um, CapEx, uh, National Review, and he is the uh, owner-operator of the Marginally Productive uh, Substack. Welcome, Sam. Thank you. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, I remember one of the essays that I read well, I think a few months ago of yours, I, I thought was was very striking, was the uh, Britain 2049 essay, I think it was in The Critic. It was very good. I mean, it wasn't was less of an essay. It was kind of like a short story, very uh, zero HP Lovecrafty. I feel in 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 tone and uh, in in the in, in how it was presented. Um, and I mean, if you could just um, I don't know, give give my my listeners a, a an intro about oh, what was the story about because it was quite gripping. Um, so this was a um, this was a piece of pure sort of um, you know. When he woke from troubled dreams and decided to set down all the absolutely mad stuff that he was thinking about, um, sort of sort of incidents where I was um, I was trying to think about how the country might look sort of fifty years from now, or thirty years from now actually I guess, um, and sort of decided to say say what would happen if you took all the existing trends in the countries to the sort of logical extremes and then pushed them a little bit further, um, and so this was the you know. Um, basically trying to write up a sort of um, vaguely plausible dystopian Britain where everything's sort of run on the basis of what's good for our NHS, um, what's good for the sort of the, the landlord classes and what's sort of, um, what's sort of good for the sort of um, boomer-occupied dystopia that we kind of have running the country. Um, so it was a, it was a, a slightly slightly bizarre piece, but um, a few people said they liked it, so apparently I didn't completely burn on my credibility yeah. writing it. No, it was because, to be honest, I mean, on, on my... On my... Worst days, I think that you know the a continuation of current trends is probably the the you know overwhelmingly likely thing that's going to happen um because that's essentially typically what happens <laughs> uh there are there yeah. are breaking points there are revolutions, but you know usually things are on rails, and you paint a very vivid picture of what uh, the current railway leads to, and it's uh it is quite dystopian but also kind yeah. of comfortable you know like uh it it is it, very plausible because it just takes a few steps down the line to get there you know it's it's jarring now from our perspective but i think if someone were to read a story about 2022 and i don't know in the year 2000 they would have maybe a similar um experience yeah so, so sorry you all of your private information is held by these random tech companies in America who you and don't know what they're doing with it, but that's is completely fine and normal. Yeah, I think it would be sort of very um very unusual. Um and, and yeah, it's like it's it is, to be honest, like not that implausible some of this stuff. Like um I, I suspect we, we might have managed to build high speed two by twenty fifty, but it'll be very, 
sort of touch and go. So for so for the readers who's or listeners rather who don't know, um, High Speed Two is a major UK infrastructure project. They're trying to build a high speed railway up from London through to I think Edinburgh. Um, and basically, what they have been doing for the last decade is cutting bits of the line off, so it keeps getting shorter. But at the same time, the price keeps going up by a few billion each year. So it's just a remarkable process whereby um, you know every year it costs massively more than it previously. And also every year it does less. So I'm sort of saying by the time we get to 2050, it'll still be being delayed. It'll just be between like London and Luton, which is a couple of miles outside the town. Um, and it'll still cost about the GDP of Angola. So um, yeah, it's just, uh, there's there's a lot of trends you can sign up, kind of look at in the UK and sort of forecast forward. Like, you know, um, the idea that so much government policy has recently been sort of dictated by what's good for the NHS and not just what's good for the NHS in terms of funding, but sort of how do we start to interfere in people's lives to make them make the right choices? Um, so, you know, how do you make them exercise more? How do you make them eat healthy? How do you make them not eat certain things, drink certain things, do certain things? Um, so here I've decided, you know, in China, you have this social credit system. In Britain, you'd have something similar. You'd have carry credits that you have to earn to have your food because otherwise it's bad for the NHS. Um, and that's, you know, another thing was you know, the work from work order, because basically there was a work from home order during the pandemic. If you could. Um, lots of people switched to work from home, really liked it, didn't go into, into central London. All the commercial landlords got very unhappy about it. And the government started doing this um, return to the office drive. We were saying, oh, you really need to start doing, going back now. And you sort of end up going like, well, what business of this is yours? Why are you doing this? Why are you sort of telling companies what to do? So I'm sort of saying, you know, in the future, all the office work will take place in the virtual metaverse, but you'll still have to go into the physical office. So you have to go to Pret a Manger around the corner, buy your lunch there, and make sure the commercial landlords are happy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's like a slight exaggeration of current trends, but not that much. Yeah, and that's. I think that's why it's so it's so striking that you know it's 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 very. Um, very plausible, uh, especially with, you know, like you, you rightly allude to all the, the COVID uh, regime um, orders and uh, the fact that these are all emergency measures, you know, work from home, work from the office. And uh, essentially, they're, they're, they're partly nudged by lobbying groups and other interests. And uh, it, it's all in the interest of the, the um, I know, the management of the individual so that, you know, you're safe and, and warm. Um, and I also I, I like that in the in the essay you mentioned that you know you you might be overweight but you're still healthy you know healthy kind of how's that healthy <laughs> at any size type ingredient in it you know you you also can't be snubbing the the the, the real gods of um, of our regime you know you 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 might have your calorie restriction but if you're obese you're still great <laughs> it's it's all good yeah it's like it's a sort of a, a rip off of the the start of uh, George Orwell's so I almost said 1989 then because I was sort of thinking, God, it's when you sort of start confusing your own title with people so you get in real trouble and then there's video of you saying it and then like um, it gets broadcast and you look like an idiot forever. So that would have been very embarrassing. Um, but yeah, there's, you know, the start he has a two minutes hate. So unless you have the two minutes exercise, obviously the NHS instructor is morbidly obese, but it's telling you to lose weight for your own health. But I thought it was, it's actually not that far away from this. If you've ever had the misfortune to go into an NHS hospital or sort of, um, GP clinic. The idea that someone more be may turn to telling you how unhealthy it is is not that implausible. No, no, I think um, 
in a way, the kind of the, the, the brilliance of this, uh, this piece is just the fact, not necessarily the fact that everything is, um, that you present as, a, as an outlandish concept, but that you unite so many details of our current existence into this, you know, uh, kind of picture uh, where it's like oh, all of these things individually do happen at, in the current, in, in the present time, but, you know, they're not kind of melded together into, into, you know, this, this co- cohesive story of, of the future, you know, they're just going to become permanent in the future. That's, that's the problem. Um, anyway, I do point people towards that because it's a, it's a, it's a really um, lovely piece. Uh, again, Britain 2049 is in the critic and I'll put it in the show notes. Um, uh, you, I think your, your training is as an economist um, and this is kind of the perspective that you offer typically in, in, in your work. Yeah, so so my background, um, I did my undergrad in economics at York, and I did my MPhil in economics at Oxford, and I did work as an economics consultant for a bit. Always sort of switched into doing some of the writing full time. Um, so it's I, I actually have one journal publication on economics as well, which um, came out last year. So this is a this is like a small insight into academia, which is a world I've left well behind. But some friends and I, in I think it was in it must have been early March 2020 looked at this COVID stuff and went, right, but this is going to be really bad. Um, I mean, we're saying that in February, but in March, we decided to write a paper about it and say, okay, look, government does messaging. Um, what's the sort of right way to tell people, like, you know, do you do a bit of social distancing? Do be careful to try not to spread this thing. Um, and what we actually found is that if you do sort of really terrifying messaging, which lots of governments have really gone to sort of double down on, um, if you do the really terrifying message where you say, you know, you're going to kill your grandmother and everyone you love, and you'll never be catch it if you go outside for five minutes. Um, what actually happens is people go, oh, I'm definitely going to catch it. There's no point in taking any precautions whatsoever because, you know, if I catch it now, I catch it next week. Um, and staying at home is really boring. So we, we wrote that paper up, um, sort of our survey data, and our sort of economic model of it all. It was all written and submitted sort of in March that year. I think it came out about a year later, um, because this is this is when economics journals work at top speed. They will, uh, you'll eventually get through the peer review process about twelve months down the line. So, um, excellent. So wow. yeah, that was interesting. Yeah, you have to be put through the gears and and, and see if uh, if if it's acceptable that you be reviewed by all your peers. Yeah, I mean, was there like was the implication just that uh, you know the the messaging was wrong and that essentially this is kind of the the way everyone went and. Uh, yeah, I mean, was there any other uh, unsavory implication to that paper? Um, no, I mean, there, there were a few interesting things, actually. Like, one of, one of the, it was obviously really early on in the pandemic. So you had this, um, one of the things we found were people were just, they were actually already terrified, basically. And so they were, to the degree that any sort of, anything you sort of did to scare them was more um, uh, disadvantageous and advantageous. Because these these are people who are saying, I think at that point, the R number was somewhere around maybe two bit more i honestly can't remember because it's so long ago now whatever it was it wasn't that high um and you had people saying yeah if i catch it i'll probably give it to 115 other people like we had in our responses we had this massive spike at the upper round we were like well no one's going to say more than 100 rights and people kept clicking like 100 plus so they were um or, or whatever the, whatever the cap was so you just had these people who were just absolutely terrified they thought it's the end of the world it's going to be sort of um super transmissible and to be fair of them to be fair to them like it did feel a bit like the end of the world you have governments sort of going to lockdown health systems collapsing um it, you know, it, was, it was i think it's 
kind of hard to remember just how scary it was back then. Um, and so the kind of message we were going with was, you really don't want to scare people more because they're just going to become completely fatalistic about this. Um, but yeah, sorry, that's um, slightly off topic. But yeah, that's some, some of the research I used to do. No, no, I think it's uh, I think it's definitely on topic. I mean, there's probably not been a, a a narrative disruption on the scale of of COVID policy, you know, ever before in in, in our history, and it kind of it it really laid bare the the machinations of 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 how you know the regime works and how um, you know narratives shift from one to the other. I mean, the first people on the scene with masks were you know weird forum dwellers, more 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 right wing than than left wing and then it it all flipped and i mean it, this this happened not only in living memory it was months ago for, for you know you could see this with your own eyes so i think a lot of people had um revelations about about how things work um and i feel like there's there's still a lot of kind of economic um, turmoil that has not been reckoned with that came from those policies and all of this stuff. And now people are, okay, this is, you know, these are Putin's price hikes or Joe Biden's, you know, inflation or things like that. I mean, these were insane measures, unprecedented and, you know, globally implemented by, by governments. Um, and the idea that we've now moved on to the next thing and whatever's happening now is the thing that's actually, you know, disturbing the economy. And it is in many ways, obviously, you have a, a war in a, you know, with a major superpower that's also a major gas provider. Obviously, those are connected. But uh, at the same time, you know, people were bailed out of COVID by um, giving them huge bales of money. <laughs> so, I mean, that's not something that just, uh, you know, you can, you can just get over and, uh, and then something else happens. I mean, how do you, how do you see this from, from, you know, your perch in, in, in the UK? I mean, do you see COVID fallout as being, um, you know, something that people are paying attention to, or, or is it just been papered over and now it's all about Putin? Yeah. So, so it's really quite unfortunate in that we basically moved from one once in a generation crisis to another once in a generation crisis in the space of about 12 months. Um, and, and, you know, these really are sort of, as much as we sort of might look back and COVID and say, oh, it's just the flu. I mean, it really was actually a sort of a really serious crisis until the point where the vaccines were sort of available. Um, and we sort of give them to all people and sort of stop having to lock everyone in their homes to keep them from dying. Um, so I think one of the, the pieces of fallout, which has sort of been, maybe less reckoned with is what sort of happened over the period of COVID. You, you have this crisis and the government gets massively large of compensation, spends way more money, um, borrows way more money, uh, and interferes in people's lives on a truly unprecedented scale. So the screen in the UK, it was basically telling you, not quite so explicitly, but basically de facto saying, if you live on your own, you can see your girlfriend or partner, like, not at all. And if you live in a shared house later on, like, one of you can see your partner. So, you know, you're basically to the degree of like who can share your bed is not what they're regulating, um, which obviously in other contexts they would never do at all. So you have this, um, you have this sort of unprecedented expansion of the state into people's lives. And I think it's left a mark in that when you have when you have a major war, the government borrows lots of money and spends lots of money and takes lots of control. After the war, it doesn't quite go back to where the previous high tide line was. It definitely contracts, it definitely retreats, but it still ends up larger than it was because it, it expands its responsibility to expand its spending um, and it tends not to give those things up once it's done it. Um, and so in the UK, we've had this um, quite real expansion in size of the state due to this. Um, and we're sort of now looking at sort of um, how, how we're going to fund that. 
In terms of the inflation, um, I think it's slightly unfortunate in a way. I mean, obviously, it's hugely unfortunate that uh, Russia's invaded Ukraine and sort of caused this um, second crisis. But it's also, um, I think, sort of driven attention away to, from the fact that we were actually due for a fair bit of inflation anyway. Um, and this is, I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of, a, it, it wasn't, it wasn't going to be quite the crisis that we have now, um, but we had quite a lot of demand. That have been sort of suppressed during COVID, people staying at home, they're not going out, they're not spending, they're saving the money they are getting from the government. All this demand sort of filled up and then sort of unleashed at once towards the end of it. Um, and it was unfurled into a world where COVID had done quite a lot of damage to supply chains. So, like some companies have sh- sort of shut down operations or slowed down operations, it's been back up to size. Um, China is still doing sort of intermittent lockdowns and sort of suddenly cities stop exporting, the ports shut down. So there's all this disruption. I think you can you can probably remember if you think back to last October, November, um, there's queues of ships lined up off the coast of the United States of America. Um, so you can kind you can kind of see the stress in global supply chain chains back then, and that was going to drive price. I mean, it was driving prices up. Um, and what we kind of piled on top of that is now we have Russia saying, "Okay, look after you guys," and we're saying, "Okay, nothing, no, nothing for Russia." So you have these sort of um, massive sanctions. Um, and sort of box and trade going both ways. And so you have further disruption to, do, to supply chains, particularly in Europe. And it's all sort of um, just feeding into this, this inflation. Um, I don't think the inflation is, is primarily caused by printing lots of money. Um, I know Friedman would say it's everywhere and always a monetary phenomenon, but in this particular case, um, even if you tell the stock of money completely constant, what's basically happened is such a massive contraction in supply. So you can think about the traditional you know, upward sloping supply graph, um, downward sloping demand graph. And if you saw the thought about that for the entire economy, each good, um, what's happened in Europe is energy prices have gone up through the roof. Um, and obviously, the prices have gone through the roof as well because of the um, sort of distortion to shipping, which is still unfurling. And when you decrease supply like that, you have fewer goods in the economy. And if you have the same amount of money floating around chasing fewer goods, um, Naturally, prices go up to compensate because that's what they do. They, um, prices are sort of your algorithm for matching supply to demand. And so, when they, um, when you have this big contraction, supply goes down, GDP goes down, prices go up in this particular way. Um, and, so that's, and that's how you get stagflation, which is quite unusual economically speaking. It's not the standard sort of recession we're used to thinking of, like a financial crisis or something, which mostly hits the demand side of the economy, but these productive uh, capacity mostly unchanged. Um, this is not that scenario, which means it's also much harder to get out of because you can't sort of do fiscal stimulus. Monetary stimulus is exactly the opposite of what you want them to do. And so governments have this really torrid time trying to get out of it. Um, that doesn't mean they won't try sort of new and terrible policies. Um, so, and we've just had COVID where they spent a lot of money and they've got used to the state being massively larger. And so, um, Take from I think we were discussing earlier before we started recording, we were discussing the state of things in the UK. Um, and in particular, uh, Liz Truss on the Prime Minister, who, who sort of comes in earlier this month, replaces Boris Johnson, who had one scandal too many at last. Um, although Liz Truss is now doing sufficiently bad in the poll that who knows, maybe we'll see Boris again next year at some point. Um, but so we have Liz Truss replace Boris, who, who, who sort of self-destructed in, in spectacular fashion. Um, and she sort of came in and won the leadership race on the back of being the free market, sort of small government candidate, sort of loved by the conservative rights. So that's, that's how she gets in, and she beats Rishi Sunak in the final pair off. Um, and from there, the first thing she basically does is say, right, as your new free market small state prime minister, um, we're going to spend 200 billion over the next two years on 
putting a cap on energy prices, um, which is just a, firstly, it's a massive intervention to make because we think it's 200 billion, but we have no idea because the the state of the UK energy market basically is, is as follows. The UK has quite a lot of renewable energy and some nuclear, it doesn't really have very much coal, it has a reasonable amount of gas. Um, and what this basically means is that the, the electricity generation that's easy to turn up and easy to turn down and on demand is going to be gas produced. Um, so energy prices tend to move in line with gas prices because we have gas for heating, gas for cooking, you have electricity for everything else, but electricity is generated by gas and the marginal units. So a lot of the time, the two basically move together sort of very, very closely. And you know, we're basically always paying the marginal price of gas for stuff. Um, that's a bit more than energy than I'm sort of trying to efficiency losses. That's sort of um, you know, not the end of the world in and of itself, unless, for instance, um, because just to, to make clear, we have our own gas supplies, but mostly we import from Norway and we import electricity directly from the continent. So this is all fine so long as there's not some sort of big aggregate shock which decreases gas supply and electricity supply across the continent. Say, for instance, if Russia stopped gas exports. So now with everyone sort of scrambling across Europe for gas supplies, we are facing massively higher prices here. And the government stepped in and said, well, we'll cap them. And we'll pay the difference between what you pay as a household and what the market says you should pay. And it's also done this for um, businesses for at least six months. Um, so the first thing is we don't know how much we're going to spend because it's basically completely reliant on what gas supply is going to be. It's completely reliant on what demand is going to be across the continent. If you have a very cold winter, everyone's buying gas, then the British government has basically said we are always going to be the marginal consumer of gas on the continent. Um, so that's essentially really expensive. And the second thing is it's completely destroyed the incentive for people to reduce their gas use um, in a really significant way because what you could have done, Hypresky, is say everyone's gas bill goes up a thousand pounds, let's take an example. Um, if you give them a thousand pounds, they wouldn't keep using gas like they had the year before. They'd look at it and they'd go, okay, I've got a thousand pounds, I can spend all that on my gas bill, or I can take 300 of it here and buy draft excluders, um, electric blankets, these kind of things that will make my life easier and house warmer. Um, and I'll take another couple of hundred of that and spend it on things which I happen to quite like. Um, you know, I'm happy for the, to turn the thermostat down and degree, have that extra money and spend it on like, maybe fuel for the car, go for an extra drive, this, this kind of thing. Um, Instead, what we've done is say, we'll pay the difference between the energy price and what it should be for however much electricity you use, how much gas you use, but we're not going to help you with anything else. And so you end up in a situation where we're basically incentivizing higher use while trying to buy from the continent and while supply is low, which is basically a recipe for gas blackouts. Um, so it's, it's just an absolutely disastrous idea, and I think it could really come back to haunt us. Yeah, I mean, this is essentially what we've been doing here in uh, in Romania for I think over a year now. This has been you know state policy, and it's just completely destroyed the the energy uh, distribution market. Um, like, I mean, I've I've posted about this on Twitter, but uh, my gas supplier um, just decided unilaterally that they're not going to supply. They just sent me kind of a you know cancellation of our contract. Um, they haven't sent my contract to another gas supplier. They just told me that's it. Uh, you're not going to be getting any more gas from us. And then the the problem is that you know we've been trying to contact other gas suppliers, and they will not return my calls. You know, I've gotten a few like since I posted that, I've gotten a few answers. But I mean, these are like five x, seven x prices from suppliers of last resort. And you know, I'm I'm still waiting to. <laughs> 
to to yeah maybe find someone who's not you know going to charge me maybe double instead of you know seven x. So yeah, it's uh it's it's quite the problem. I mean, this is as a um this is for our family company for like an office building. This is not my home, which you know we're we're heated by electricity here, which is not necessarily much better because that's also exploding, also under a price cap, but also has the same issues where you know distribution market is completely upended. Um, and this is mostly because regulations related to this are changing, you know, every week, every month, there is some new thing. So everyone in the distribution market is is either canceling contracts or not signing up new people because they don't really know what this is going to look like in, you know, whatever, a month or two or six. So, um, yeah, price caps. I don't necessarily think it's a, it's a very good... I mean, I'm sure the UK government might be better uh, in, in handling um, the actual you know, implementation of it because I, this is partly the problem that we have here is just the government fumbling how it's actually executing on the price cap. Uh, and it's not, you know... Um, there are obviously some um, some uh, corruption implications here as well, you know, which distributors are getting what, um, because this is all bankrolled by the state. So it's, uh, it's, it's a problem. But um, yeah, for now, we're, you know, we're, we're, in, we're in big trouble. Um, and uh, the, the price cap is guaranteed until March of 2023, which, you know, sounds decent for, for home consumers. But the, the problem is that, for example, for companies, um, the price cap uh, is up to 85% of what you consume. So your distributor is just going to load that last 15% with the complete overhead that they didn't charge you for in the in the in the first one. So it's um, yeah, I mean the 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 final bill is in, immense anyway. Uh, so yeah, we're we're in deep trouble here. And uh, like I said, I'm not sure this is exactly how it's going to play out for the UK, but it might be giving you some some you know pointers as to as to what might happen. So, so the UK policy is um, a little bit different. It doesn't have that carve up for the last fifteen percent. It has. Um, I think it will basically be fine in that the the UK government is going to pay the difference between, between the bills and it's basically fully committed to doing so. So, um, from that perspective, it won't be sort of. Um, it's not going to totally stop market functioning in that way. I suspect. I make myself positive fortune there, but I don't think it will. I think the problem is going to cause is that it's going to keep demand massively higher. Than it should be. Um, when demand is high across Europe, I suspect there might be days when demand in the UK exceeds supply and we'll end up with blackouts um, anyway, which would be amazing because it will be in the style of the government spending absolutely loads and loads, loads of money keeping people supposedly warming in electricity, funding blackouts with those billions, and then basically sort of making the situation worse. So, um, you know. Um, it, it's certainly not my what I would have done on day one in office, um, but I'm, I'm sure the, I'm sure the trust team know better than I do. Yeah, I mean, I think even with COVID, you know, the policy of, of having broad lockdowns was something that um, felt a bit love like okay, you have a first mover, uh, you see what they're doing, and then kind of a copycat move. And I feel like these price caps are something that's you know this is this is not the first government doing this in Europe. It might be one of these situations where okay. You know, this is how other people are handling it. Um, you know, we're just going to import this uh, this policy wholesale and see what's happening. I mean, what what does the situation? Do you know what the situation looks like in, in Greater Europe? I just see this happening to governments around here, and seems to be like, you know, the the instant solution to uh, you know to to solve this problem. And uh, yeah, feels feels a bit like reminiscent of lockdown. 
I, I'm, I know the Germans are now, I think, basically on course to start doing domestic price caps as well. Um, and that's that's sort of a lovely additional thing about this, which I don't, I'm not sure people have considered, which is if you if you have all the governments around Europe saying, okay, we'll pay the difference between what the price is and what it should be, um, that's obviously bad enough on its own terms. Um, but if they all start doing it at the same time, uh, they're all going to be bidding for the same units of electricity. They're going to be ramping the price up massively higher than it would be in any reasonable world because basically what they've got now is got a scenario where they've set some price. Um, the domestic consumers go, okay, at this price, I'd mind this much. They go off to the market and buy that. But across Europe, you add all that up, everyone's got an artificially low price, which is higher than the actual price is. Demand is therefore um, rather a lot higher than it should be. And so if you have a few countries which don't do price caps, which sort of lose out massively and the prices are absolutely huge, or loads of countries do price caps, they demand loads of electricity, they, the governments bid against themselves, drive the prices absolutely through the roof, um, and then people don't get the electricity they want anyway because they've decided to completely screw the function of the European energy market. So the more countries that do this, like the worse the situation looks unless they start coordinating amongst themselves. Um, but, you know, I mean, one of, one of the things to say, which is just absolutely insane about this, um, is I was reading an analysis by an organization the other day which is saying like, well, yes, like the price caps that Britain's introducing do increase the risk of blackouts. But to be fair, um, that's probably more equitable than the alternative because blackouts are evenly spread across the population. So, right. But um, they're also really, really bad. Like your, your aim as, uh, just, uh, as a government shouldn't be, you know, we'll create blackouts because they're more equitable, which means you should stop blackouts from happening, work out a way of getting money to the poorest households. But um yeah, apparently, apparently that's not where people's heads are at. Yeah, I mean, wasn't I think you've written about this? And there's a note from the IMF, uh, you know, about the uh, about the, the new policies implemented by by the List Trust government, uh, and it seemed like. Um, they were, uh, I think, they were objecting to the the tax cuts, um, and that you know they, um, they that the UK. I mean, looking at you know we've we've kind of laid out the disastrous you know direction that things are going in. Their main concern was about um, equity in terms of who is going to be um, affected by by tax cuts, or or maybe I'm getting this wrong, but it seemed to be like you know they, there was a clear value hierarchy baked into into those statements, and it wasn't. Okay, keep the lights on. It was, you know, who's uh, who's getting what? Yeah. So, so the IMF. Um, so, so for a bit of context for the readers and or listeners, well, I keep saying readers um, for the listeners who are sort of based in America and elsewhere who haven't really been following what Trust has done. Um, she, she and her chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng have sort of come in and they have announced a sort of mini budget. Um, which for various, for various reasons, which I won't go into here because they're quite sort of non-technical, had sort of really, really spooked the markets, partly because of the way they've announced it. I think a lot of it is a communication that they basically announced 45 billion per year of tax cuts. I mean, I say 45 billion, it's 27 billion next year, but it gets out to 45 billion by 2025, alongside sort of big increases in spending driven by inflation and sort of the needs to fund the NHS. Um, but I mean, they've not announced the spending increases, but the spending increases are baked in because of the fact that prices are going up. So what they've basically done is they said, okay, fine, we're going, to, um, we're going to pay for this somehow. But they've not said how they're going to pay for it. Like they haven't said if there'll be spending cuts because they would be big spending cuts. They haven't said if there'll be sort of um, more borrowing. And they've sort of they've they've kind of hinted that it would be a combination of borrowing and economic growth, maybe some spending cuts. And so the markets basically have looked at this and gone, we're not confident you can generate the economic growth needed to actually pay for this, which means either you're going to do tax increase in the future 
you're going to do spending cuts in the future or now, or you're going to um, like keep borrowing for an extended period. And either way, we don't like this very much. We want more information. We don't. We're going to sort of step back. So there's been this sort of um, quite fascinating sort of market sort of um, not really panic, but sort of adjustments. Um, and part of this was the IMF stepping in and saying some of the same things that other participants were saying, and then turning around and saying, and also this is a very a budget which makes the UK much more unequal. Um, and I thought that was a really interesting sort of prioritization because they, when you read the statement, it gave a lot of room to the point of budget policy and um, much more so than I would think would warrant it in that if you genuinely think the budget is a very bad reason for the, for the very bad idea, so for reasons of fiscal sustainability or for reasons of sort of driving inflation or for any of these sort of um, reasons, um, you should really be talking about those in some depth and explaining why and sort of saying what government should do instead. And uh, what they actually kind of focused on was, well, this is very uneven. It gives more money to the richest households and relatively less money to the poorest. Um, and as you say, it's a sort of fascinating sort of mindset, which really is everywhere now, that equality is kind of increasingly regarded as like an ultimate good in and of itself. Um, and not just in terms of, you know, it's a terrible cliche, but the sort of tradition would be sort of, you know, you have, um, you want some equalization of outcome because you don't want some houses that are desperately, desperately poor. Um, but you certainly don't want absolute equality of outcome, and that shouldn't be your sort of end goal. Um, and it's sort of this sort of mindset which has started to develop in, in, in some fields is now being expanded across the economic analysis in quite an interesting way. Yeah, it's um, it's it seems like they don't necessarily mind if people are equal at zero, which was kind of the the you know the issue we had with communism. <laughs> but now it seems to you know if if this is the 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 high ordering principle, it it does make sense. Like if everything flows from this, uh, you know, being equal at zero or being equal under under the the banner of a blackout is uh, is is yeah good enough. Um, I want to speak to you about crime, about crime in the UK. I've spoken about crime in the UK quite, quite many times because it's just been such a shocking um, revelation to to my own life. You know, I'm I'm from Eastern Europe, you know, a place known for its crime and a place known for, you know, being the second world and, you know, but just trailing Western Europe in, in many respects. And then I moved to the UK and then I live in East London and just uh, just uh, the the contact with with uh, urban crime has been a an important um i don't know initiation in my life and it's kind of led me to to seek out all sorts of esoteric knowledge um you've written about this and you've had a, an essay um called crime is being decriminalized and it did feel to me like that i mean i moved to london probably about 8 years ago now i mean i've been living in romania for almost 3 years now so um I don't know. It's it feels like things have accelerated since then. But even then, you know, it, it was a a little bit jarring. So um, it's just the the helplessness in a way, or the disinterest that I saw in 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 the police and policing just basic, you know, petty crimes and and violent crimes and things that were happening all around me, and it, also the helplessness of people because a lot of people were just not, you know. They they would either call the police and they would just you know jot things down and say yeah you know we were just making a report about whatever happened here people would just not call it in at all you know it'd be like okay why do I need a police report for something that I know is not going to be investigated so I don't know what have you been seeing lately because I know you've written about this quite quite recently yeah so so there's a there's, so for a bit of context um, or again for sort of listeners overseas. 
Um, one of the defining trends of British governments in the last 10 years was in 2010, we had a government elected under David Cameron with George Osborne as chancellor, um, which embarked on a program of austerity. So the idea was it was going to shrink down, shrink down sort of government borrowing, shrink down the deficits, and in particular sort of shrink down government spending. Um, and one of the things that basically happened was it cuts the number of um, police officers really quite substantially. We're sort of talking, you know, 10,000 plus officers off the beat, um, which uh, has basically destroyed quite a lot of institutional knowledge and um, institutional capacity. And that, you know, you've lost, um, you lost three serving officers. You've gone from 172,000 in 2010 to, I think, 150,000 in 2018, 2019. We're now back up to 160, and they're hoping to go back up to 170, sort of relatively soon. So we're basically in this big cut, and now we're sort of reversing it. So you have fewer police officers to investigate things, but also you have less resources to police. So in London in particular, um, I have a friend who's a police officer, and one of the things he complains about a lot is that he used to have these local stations with these sort of police officers in, but one of the consequences of the cuts was you didn't have enough officers to start them. So you sort of consolidated these areas where you now have like one police officer responsible for several hundred thousand people, or sorry, one police station responsible for several hundred thousand people. Um, it's sort of quite an incredibly um, remarkable way. And you, you know, and it, it's also worth saying as well, not only is this a problem, they also cut spending on the jails, they cut spending on the criminal justice system. So you don't have the police officers to go out and investigate the crimes and catch criminals and do the sort of street patrolling that we know is really effective in deterring crime. We don't have the sort of, um, court system which can process cases quickly so you have people waiting years for the court dates after they committed some sort of terrible crime you then have on top of that um jails are full they're really crowded they're not operating properly so you have people going to jail and getting like a really short sentence and getting really suffering through it so you, you can have people commit um spectacularly violent crimes go in get a seven-year sentence be out in three and a half um, re-offend and into the cycle again. So, like the criminal justice system is kind of just not really working. Um, and basically, as, as a consequence of this, you have the police forces are, are solving the lowest proportion of crimes in record. So, like six percent of reported crimes, I think, result in charges. Um, sexual offences are record highs. Um, uh, like um, some some crimes are basically just been decriminalised, as we say. So like a really basic one is um, stealing from a vehicle. You know, you smash out the window, take something from the car. Um, there are 55,000 threats from vehicles reported in London last year. How many of those do you think were sold? A handful. Five. 270, yeah, not much more. 270 out of 55,000. Um, and now, again, like you say, people just don't report stuff to the police. They know it won't be sold. So imagine how much higher that would be if you sold it to that figure. Different version, um, you know, 21,000 neighbourhoods in England Wales last year, or in, in the last three years rather, reported that at least, at least one burglary in the area had happened, right? Do you know how many areas where of those 21,000, not a single one of those burglaries was, was solved? 17,000. So you have 21,000 areas say at least one burglary has happened here, and 17,000 of those police go, oh well, can't do anything about it. Um, so it's and I think, I think people really underestimate just how costly this is um, because the welfare implications of crime are just absolutely massive. I think in America, I calculated, well, I didn't calculate, I got some other figures sort of updated them using someone else's paper. Like you can, you can put a cost on this somewhere around, I think it was around 7% of GDP in the USA. Like that's the welfare implication of this stuff. Um, 
probably lower in America in the UK because we don't have so much gun crime, we don't have quite so much violent crime, but still, you know, significant. Um, and it's just deeply frustrating because it doesn't really have to be this way. Um, if you were getting these sort of, um, you know, I think in England and Wales, somewhere around 50% of all the prison sentences that are handed out go to offenders who already have 15 previous convictions at least. And like, I feel like there's, there's room here to be not three strikes and you're out, but, you know, now you've passed conviction number 10, perhaps you should be putting your way for a slightly longer period rather than sort of waiting until 15, 16, 17. Like, um, and yeah, it, it's just, yeah, remarkable. No, I think it's, I, I love your, your very gentle British uh, hedging on this. I mean, to be honest, uh, you know, prison, penal colonies had a certain logic to them. You know, um, the gulag might might be making a comeback and, uh, you know, if if, um, if Red Caesar comes. <laughs> it's just, yeah, I mean, the, the idea that, you know, you have these people essentially getting a, a education and, and how to be better criminals, you know, spending a, a little bit of time workshopping their, their criminal ideas and then being put back out on the street again and again and again and reoffending. And the fact that this isn't just some, some, that people aren't completely outraged by this is, uh, is, you know, is, is a problem. But I think it's also the way criminality is framed nowadays. You know, it's, it's, it's framed as, um, criminals are essentially victims of society and um, by punishing them in any way that's not ther therapeutic, um, you're compounding the, the victimization of this, this person. This person's already suffered, you know, they wouldn't be committing a crime if they weren't, you know, victimized by some sort of systemic injustice. Uh, and that, you know, that's that's kind of the logic behind defund this or that or the fact that, you know, there are too many, many people in, in prison. And, uh, you know, it might be the case that some some, you know, minor offenses shouldn't be, uh, especially in the U.S., shouldn't be punished by by prison sentences. That's arguable. Uh, but the idea that you have someone who's, you know, who's a repeat offender, you know, many, many times over orders of magnitudes over. Um, and they're, you know, just, you know, betting, being let out for good behavior and things like that is, uh, is absolute insanity. Any sort of civilization before five minutes ago would have seen this on its face as being insane. Um, you know, maybe they would have had gallows for this particular problem, but you know, it's, it's, it's absurd. So, um, yeah, <laughs> you know, I, like I said, I, I, I like the fact that you're, you're hedging and, and things like that, but you know, it's it's pretty clear that you know a more permanent solution needs to be found for uh, for for these for these issues. Depending, you know, if if you have enough money to to put them in prison, one, but or you know, whatever whatever is needed. <laughs> That's kind of my my position. So I've actually written about this, and again, I think once you sort of look at the sheer cost um, of this crime to society, I think you actually find you do have enough money. You just don't sort of um. Because I, I, I sometimes look at it this way, like. If, if you lived in a lower crime society, um, because just, we'll, we'll sort of get onto this in a second, but like um, I think basically what you need is, is, is an expansion of jails and nicer jails, but I'll come back to it in a moment. But imagine that you locked away the sort of most violent criminals for a second. Um, you could have, for the same amount of spending on criminal justice, so the same amount of spending on police, the same amount of spending on prisons and judges, and kind of, well, more prisons, but the same amount of judges, you could have significantly lower crime in the rest of society. I think people really underestimate how much safer they would feel. Because um, I do you remember a while ago there was an advert that came out like I think it was Samsung's headphones or something, 
And everyone got very upset about it because it showed a woman going for a run at two in the morning. And they went, well, that's completely unrealistic and it's unsafe. And you know, they shouldn't be, shouldn't be showing that. And I remember thinking, actually, why don't we live in a society where that's a, a reasonable position? Why can't people go for a jog at two in the morning if they want to? Um, I mean, it might be cold out there, but, you know, uh, it, it should be safe to do so. Um, and there are societies, I think, where that, where that is possible. Um, so why don't we have that? Um, and, you know, it's, if, you, if you address crime significantly, you, you sort of push towards that. Alternatively, if you're really sort of cheap about things, you could cut spending on criminal justice quite significantly and have the same amount of crime, um, which might not be the best solution, but, you know, it'd still save you a lot of money. So, um, yeah, and I, think, I think the thing is people just don't really understand how tractable this is. Because distribution of criminal behaviour, so I, I wrote um, an essay for the Effective Altruism Forum on this because I was um, slightly frustrated with some of their approaches to these things. I thought it might be worth trying to nudge them towards um, a better sort of way of looking at things. But, you know, um, if you look at the data in Sweden, I think about 1% of the total population accounts for something like 63% of all the violent crime. So this is, um, you know, it's basically just this, this one group of persistent offenders who if you can sort of find and put them in prison, um, you, you reduce the sort of level of violence in society just massively. Um, and it, it's not like we don't know who these people are because they tend to, it's quite rare that someone's first criminal offense is like they've murdered someone. Like there's usually a pattern of like they escalate behavior, they get increasingly violent, and then they do something like really, really bad. And the UK goes, oh my goodness, we need to put this person away for at least 10 years. Then they let them out and they do it again. Um, so there's, there's this, this we, we, we kind of know who, who is likely to reoffend and who has sort of offended lots in the past. And then the second thing is like, people talk about prisons reforming people, but that doesn't really seem to happen. Um, well, because prisons, I think, are often really unpleasant, brutalizing experiences, which we need to do a lot to improve. But also because these, these offenders are going to possess characteristics which require quite a lot of support in the prison and in general society, which makes it somewhat more likely they're going to reoffend. Like, um, I mean, there's, there's data from these South Rails where like, Lots of the individuals who were sort of prosecuted for murder or like aggravated robbery or burglary, that kind of thing, um, they had really high discount rates. And what that basically means is they don't really think too much about the future when they're making decisions. Like they'll think about it, but they won't really weigh it. So if you're sitting there going, like, if you do this bad thing, we'll put you in jail for a very long time, it doesn't really register next to the immediate reward. Um, there's, there's quite a lot of evidence around this, like in Italy and Sweden and other places as well. Um, in the US and the UK, we know like a lot of the people who are making these decisions are. Sort of you know, they're being, I think it's like 50,000 out of 80,000 prisoners are being treated with alcohol or drug abuse in the UK. Um, somewhere like 85% of the US prison population has some sort of um, drug use issue or is incarcerated for a drug crime. Um, and lots of them have mental health issues as well. So basically, we're sort of sitting there looking at these people and going, actually, I don't think the um, traditional economic model, which is which has guided a lot of things, um, which is basically, you know, we, we, you'll rationally look at the future, make a decision based on the punishment, and then not do this. Is a very good fit for their behaviour because I don't think they're necessarily super rational. Um, which means, in turn, like, well, what does deter crime? Well, incapacitation stops crime. If you're in prison, it's quite hard to commit a crime out in the streets. Um, which is sort of swaying me to my current view, which is that prison sentences should be quite long for serious crimes. Um, and not only should they be quite long, but prisons should basically be taking the view that actually their prisoners are going to be there. For quite a long time. I don't think short sentences for minor crimes are very useful at all. I don't think we should be doing this. Um, 
So you sort of use prisons, prisons for warehousing really serious criminals away from the rest of society. And in turn, I think that means you have a moral obligation to make them sort of nicer places to be. It's almost like assisted living for people who basically can't survive in the rest of society, um, which is it's a little bit how, how Norway does it. And Norway has some sort of really quite successful model of keeping sort of crime down and um, sort of rehabilitating prisons when they are released eventually. You know, I don't think anyone really sort of looks at this and says, um, it's a massive policy success that US prisons are this brutalizing, sort of terrifying experience for people. Um, because partly because I think we shouldn't maybe in the business of doing what's effectively torture. And secondly, because it's um not really like that when you put someone in that environment, they're going to perform in any sort of meaningful way. Yeah. I mean it's it's clear that, you know, you you kind of have to look at what um what the purpose of, of these systems is, you know, it's, it's clear that, I mean, in the, in the past, um, the justice system was there for a general level of public safety. Now it's, it's kind of turned into this more kind of therapeutic approach that, like you said, doesn't, doesn't necessarily work. I mean, it's, it's the, the, even, even for the purposes that it's now intended to work for, it doesn't work and it should be reformed even within its own principles. Uh, but the idea that, you know, this is for, yeah, for creating, you know, public safety is, is, is out the window. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't seem like that's what's happening because things are getting worse and worse and, you know, deteriorating before our very eyes. And, and none of the, the measures that people are taking um, seem to be geared towards making this better. Um, I wanted to ask you the last question. This is a question everyone gets asked, uh, and it is, do you have a subversive thinker, could be a writer, could be, you know, whoever's a bit influential in, in, in your thinking that you think is underrated, that you think people should be reading more of or checking out or just knowing about? Oh, goodness. Um, there's a few, uh, but let's, let's see, which, which ones will not get referred to the UK's domestic radicalization program? Um, wow. Okay. Um, <laughs> no. Um, I mean, actually, someone that everyone should be reading who has been on the show is Ed West, um, who I think is an absolutely fantastic writer and thinker, and you should definitely read his Substack, The Wrong Side of History. Um, partly because, partly because he's just very, very funny and perceptive, but also because I he's been quite influential in how I sort of um, developed as a writer, and I think he's um, also a really good guy. So you know, I recommend Ed very wholeheartedly. Um, in terms of actual writers, the, the two, I don't, I'm not sure you can describe them as subversive, but I think they, I think they are subversive relative to society today, but they would not have been in their own time so much. Uh, the two I'd really recommend are C.S. Lewis and G.K. Chesterton. Um, I think C.S. Lewis, um, in particular, if you read the Screwtape Letters, is a really outstanding sort of explanation of sort of um, a certain sort of Christian view of humanity and, and human nature. And sort of how we struggle with temptation, how we struggle with the, the problem of evil. Um, and it's also quite funny because it's written from the perspective of the demon trying to tempt you into doing wrong. So I recommend that because I, I refer to that a lot, um, just as a sort of piece of philosophy slash theology. Um, and Chesterton, you should definitely read Orthodoxy, in which he talks about sort of the problem of the problems of what he said was modern society then. And you just read it and you recognize so much of what is an issue in society today. Um, there's a wonderful passage, for instance, where he talks about what makes a country or, or a city great. And he basically makes the argument in, in this wonderful phrasing, Rome was not loved because she was great. Rome was great because men loved her. 
And he basically says, if you love your country and you love your, your region and you do what is best for it, you'll find that it becomes great in and of itself. Um, and I think that's a perspective that's sort of been lost. And I would also recommend wholeheartedly his, his, his talk on the virtues. Because he says, and again, he's writing 100 years ago or so, that in, in his society, in the modern societies he saw it, you had Christianity or doing withdrawal. And it, obviously the vices were let loose in the world, but the virtues were let loose in the world and separated. And so you had scientists who cared for truth, but not for kindness. You had politicians who cared for kindness, but certainly not truth. And you had all of these sort of um, things which were virtuous in and of themselves, separated from the others and sort of wandering the world and causing a huge amounts of damage. And you can just look at that and look at modern politics and you go, actually, yes, there's a lot of our politics which is predicated on an idea of kindness, which involves just not telling things which are difficult as here and true. Um, and then there are people who sort of care almost entirely for truth at the expense of being extremely cool to their man. Um, I think, I think, yeah, Chesterton, I would, I would just wholeheartedly recommend Excellent. These are absolutely excellent recommendations. I uh, I love the screw tape letters, and uh, I haven't read Orthodoxy, but it's definitely on on my list. Uh, please do um, read these uh, recommended writers, and uh, I want to thank you so much, Sam. This has been this has been lovely. Um, sorry about the technical mishaps to you and to the listeners, but yeah, I think I think this is uh, very much intelligible, and uh, yeah, I'm very happy that you you came on. Thank you. I had a great time. And I want to point people towards uh, your writing and to the Marginally Productive Substack. Please do sign up. It's all in the show notes. Uh, and yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. If you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it, and maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible. So thank you. <laughs>